You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly guide to science and innovation. Hello, I am Mark Enetpanos. And I'm Leo Stevens. Welcome to The Brief, where we cover two concepts from science and business. G'day, Mark. What have you got for us today? G'day, Leo. Today I'm going to talk about what is a PhD. Well, PhD stands for Doctor of Philosophy, and it's a globally recognized postgraduate degree that is awarded by a university to a student who has carried out original empirical research over a period of at least three years. And the student will present their research in a report, which is also known as a thesis. And this report is then examined by experts, and in some countries it's actually defended in person in front of those experts. Incidentally, a PhD is also the highest degree that a university can award. Now you may also wonder, why is it, does it have philosophy in the name? Well, this term is more like a historical designation as empirical science or research developed out of philosophy going back all the way to Aristotle and the ancient Greeks. And this is a very brief explanation of what a PhD is. So, Mark, you were saying that a PhD is the highest qualification a university offers, but there are professors and distinguished professors and VCs and these kind of positions within the university that are higher than just someone who has a PhD. How does that come to be? They are actually just job titles. So a professor is something that you can call yourself if a university agrees that you can be called a professor. So it's not a qualification. You cannot study To become a professor, you are awarded a title of professor, just like you can be, you can call yourself a CEO if you're the head of a company or a company might hire you as a vice president, but it's not something that you can study at a university to become a professor. Of course, you're going to, in most cases, you're going to need a PhD to eventually become a professor. You know, and that is even something that is historically grown as well, because in the olden days, not everybody needed a PhD to become a professor, for example. Huh. And um, you know, if someone's done an engineering degree, you can expect they've learned about stress and strain and, and forces. If someone's done a maths degree, you could probably assume they've learned calculus. If someone's done a PhD, what, what should you assume that they've learned? All of the above and any other field that you can think of. So you can have a PhD and know you have a PhD in engineering or you can have a PhD in physics or a PhD in literature or a PhD in, you name it, any sort of field where you can do empirical research that practices empirical science. So where you actually look and make observations on experiments and that experiments can be much wider than what people think of it in a classical sense of being in the lab experiments can also be of course observing people so say you're an employer from a an industry position and you're looking at one graduate who's come out with a bachelor's degree or an honors and another who's come out with a phd 
kind of what differences would you expect to see out of a PhD student? I would say from that a PhD should be a little bit more stubborn than a person that has a bachelor because they've had three years to further develop their thoughts in a particular area. So I would expect them to be more knowledgeable in their area and also to be more stubborn about their ideas, whereas a bachelor person has mostly done courses and, deg- and, and subjects, you know, attended lectures, whereas a PhD person has done research, so they've developed their own thoughts a bit more. I would have thought they would have learned to be wrong. <laughs> I certainly learned to be wrong through my PhD. <laughs> well, another way of describing a PhD is actually, in, from my own experience, before I started my PhD, I thought I was pretty knowledgeable. At the end of my PhD, I actually th- thought I'd gone back in knowledge. The more I looked at things, the more I realized how little I actually understood. Indeed. Well, we should probably move on to the next topic, which was, uh, what is an entrepreneur? So in the broadest terms, an entrepreneur is simply someone who establishes a new business with the intention of it becoming financially profitable. And in that sense, it's fair to call someone an entrepreneur, even if they're establishing a traditional business like a pub, a hair salon or a consulting agency. Whatever the industry it's in, it would be typical for the entrepreneur to be one of the very first people involved in the project and to tackle tasks like creating a business plan, securing financing, finding a location for the business and hiring its first employees. Sometimes this is referred to as working on the business as opposed to working in the business. You're not servicing customers, you're actually building the structure of the business itself. I think it's worth noting that many well-known entrepreneurs like Steve Jobs or Elon Musk are not only entrepreneurial in the sense that they're creating businesses, but they're also innovators uh, in that they're working to build entirely new products or bring new services to the market. But that does not mean you have to invent an iPhone or a Tesla to be an entrepreneur. You can be an entrepreneur simply by taking a chance and starting a business. That sounds very interesting, Leo. You mentioned a couple of things like business plan, securing finance, premises, hiring people. What is the first thing an entrepreneur usually does? Is there such a thing as a first thing? Uh, Look, I'm not sure if there is such a thing as a first thing. Almost every business venture is built on some prior history of that founder gaining knowledge, building networks, having an idea. I guess from a purely legal perspective, the first thing that happens with a business is that you incorporate. So you actually go to a lawyer's office or an accountant's office and you sign paperwork that says, I am founding this business and you register it with um, the Australian business Register, that's the wrong terminology. I'm just having a mind blank at the moment. Um, But yeah, you would get yourself an ABN uh, and you would actually register a company. So from a legal perspective, that is the first thing you do in business. But quite often, the founder will actually have laid some groundwork ahead of time and kind of talked to some prospective customers, tinkered around with their product even before they literally found their company. And what's an ABN? An ABN is an identifier for a business. It's just a string of numbers like a tax file number or like a social security number if you're from the US. Uh, It identifies the business and it's something that then you carry forward as you deal with other businesses. So the government can essentially track who you are and what you're dealing with. It stands for Australian Business Number. Yeah, great. And entrepreneurs, you mentioned a few of the really big ones. What are the failure rates for entrepreneurs? Oh, very high, um, you know, 90%. I think one of the, the things that I have seen quoted is that within five years, 70% of all new businesses will fail. 
So you can expect when you're starting a new business that it won't last five years if you're just simply playing the odds. And when you're doing innovative businesses that are not in any conventional industry, there's no business plan or business model to follow, um, it's even more risky because you've got to work on developing the technology and kind of creating this business model from scratch rather than just being able to look down the road and find another pub or another restaurant that you can copy how they're operating. The flip side of that, though, is that if you are entering an established market like a coffee shop or like a restaurant, you've got a lot of competition immediately. Um, you have to have pricing that competes with those other businesses. Whereas if you are entrepreneurial and innovative and creating a new product, potentially you're going to have a monopoly on that product for a period of time and you can then sell that at a higher margin because nobody else is in that market competing with you. So I, where, where I live, there are a lot of builders around and whenever a new builder starts, they don't seem to be failing that often. Are there particular categories of entrepreneurs, because a builder is an entrepreneur, that are less likely to fail than others? Yeah, I mean, I guess not all industries are created equal. Some have higher margins, higher success rates than others. And if building is an industry where currently there's kind of many customers and not that many providers, you can expect people to be able to be much more successful being entrepreneurial in that space because they can charge a higher fee and get a lot more work. Whereas something like right now, if you were to open a restaurant today in this world of COVID, you know, you've got hardly any customer flow. You've got yeah. thousands of other providers who are all struggling to get all the customers that they need. You're probably very unlikely to succeed in founding a restaurant today. So absolutely, there's different success rates in different industries and it changes over time depending on customers and con consumer sentiment and all these kind of external factors which do not necessarily relate to how you're running your business. And that's a good concluding point to uh, finish our episode on. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for the explanation and look forward to um, more discussions next week. Yep, see you next week. <laughs>